Stop! Sure you want the rest of it? Dirty Harry Miller Dirty Harry Miller Dirty Harry Miller Podcast Dirty Harry Miller Podcast Every penny's worth Welcome to Dirty Harry Minute, the world's first and only minute-by-minute dissection of the 1971 Don Siegel classic, Dirty Harry. Today, we're up to minute 69. The minute begins with a naked body being put onto a stretcher and ends with the DA looking up at Harry from his desk. Joined off for this episode, we have Ange. Hello. (laughs) Evelyn. Hey. And John. Hello. And now, John, please dazzle us with some information. Yes, I forgot to mention last episode, it's been... Today, 2019, is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone. Hmm. Began in 1959, and I just composed a little uh, uh, Rod Serling-type narration to describe the last minute. Want to hear that, Evelyn? Oh, yes, please, please. Desperately. You have all been invited to a grim, unsocial event known as a Magnum Party. The guest of dishonor, a choir boy named Scorpio, just a moment away from his varsity eclipse. Charles Travis Scorpio, who... When the good Lord passed out of conscience and feeling for fellow men, must have been out for a beer. Charles Travis Scorpio in perhaps the last quiet moment of a violent life. His adversary, Harold Callahan, a man who carries the weight of society on his shoulders, a chip the size of the national debt. This is a man who has lived 41 undistinguished, meaningless, failure-laden years and who at this moment looks for an escape. Harold Callahan, who, by the standards of his profession, is an aging, over-the-hill relic of what was. A man who has left too many pieces of his youth in too many police reports filed subject to go free. Charles Davis Scorpio is just what Harry Callahan has been waiting for his whole life in the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Evelyn, what did you think of this minute? Well, can I just say just then that thing you just spread yeah. when you said magnum if yeah. i didn't know magnum was a gun i thought you were inviting us to an ice cream ice party cream. <laughs> <laughs> i think the original reading from one of those episodes was uh, hanging it was called a necktie party so that was the joke there, oh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. did you like this minute i mean it starts off with the solemn procedural isn't it yeah mm. clinical this minute i do enjoy the kind of que- like i wonder so as you're panning up to police headquarters um, oh, sorry, the DA's office. And it, the camera's kind of shaky and you sort of have this like, it's quite stressful to watch as you kind of, um, you've, you've just had this very disappointing moment, you know, in the case and this or this woman's clearly dead. Yet another disappointment for our hero, uh, such as he is. And then he's he's showing up at this office and it feels like it's this horrific monolith of a building. Like it's quite yeah. intimidating. It's quite... Um, has this kind of nightmarish quality to it, this kind of quaking um, and sort of pinkish tone to the to the shot. Anyone else get that? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, yeah. It's quite a contrast change from the- Yeah, from the, the end blue. Of the, we've still got that bird song, the birds tweeting, and the city's just indifferent to the, the plight of this poor, poor woman, and Harry's the only one there. Yeah, this beautiful blue, cool dawn. It's a mm. lovely shot to look at. It's very soothing to look at. Mm. And then you kind of get this, like, picnic at Hanging Rock, uh, kind of quaky monolith. 
um, and it's and it's horrible. <laughs> I, I wonder, like, this is sort of wanker territory I'm about to go into, but do you reckon that that's sort of symbolic of the fact of the opposition he's about to come up against, you know, with justice for that poor girl who just Are you got kidding? hauled I'm out totally, of the like, I'm by that 100%. <laughs> yeah. That's like, well, call me a wanker because that's <laughs> like... Uh, yeah, it's it's the it's the it's the literal proverbial brick wall yeah. of um, procedural justice yep. and bureaucracy that stands in the way of guys like Harry just wanting mm. to get their man. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you brought up Pete Nick at Hanging Rock, and we're soon going to hear Miranda <laughs> in a different context, Trent. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Um, it's a bit tawdry. In one of the sequels with sudden impact, Trent, they use Harry's theme. When Sandra Locke, you know, plays the the vigilante rapist, like the rape yeah. victim, and he sleeps with her, and they play Harry's theme there after he's sneaking oh, really? out of bed with her. So it's quite a bit of a tacky besmirching of this um this oh. scene later on in the series. Hmm. What happens at the end of that film, by the way? I could look it up on Wikipedia. She has right a vengeance. Now. She's a rape victim, and yeah. her, her sister's catatonic, and she shoots them all in the in the groin. Oh, yeah, him awesome. in the dick and kills them all. He yeah. lets he lets yeah, it go, yeah. but. Do they go off into the sunset together or what? Perhaps. They just walk on That's the, what I don't the dirty remember. boulevard. Uh, yeah, the- I mean, I've discussed before how I first knew about that film. Yeah. When my dad described it as the one where she shoots them in the dick. That was, <laughs> that was it. And after that, I mean, you're not, not going to watch it, are you? <laughs> you're like, yeah, I'm making the time. The thing about that sequel is it's very, it's very good. And in some ways it's quite tactful, but there are other bits where it's quite homophobic, his use of language and things. But the actual... The agency, it, well, the agency it gives the woman, even though she's a killer, and it's worth investing, Evelyn, if you've ever seen Sunday Back. They're on Netflix now. Yeah, oh, well, I might give it a go. Um, I like the idea of it. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, of guys being shot in the dick. It's the ultimate, um, you know, feminist revenge mm. for for it's The first Kill Bill, really. Yeah. But it's like this movie in microcosm because, like, you have his arguments with the police chiefs about how he's a dinosaur. You have the scenes of the city where there's all these hoodlums and stuff and he's the only one standing up for decency. And it's sort of like this movie, but Harry plays a cameo in his own movie, really, because it's about that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Dirty Harry Minute, Evelyn. Um, I think it's just I, I like it once he gets past the doors and we get the uh, lovely secretary mm. Um probably one of the only female speaking parts in the film. Um, Because in this film, if you are a woman, you are either uh, a dead girl, a secretary, Mm. uh, somebody's wife, Mm. or a bus driver. I think that's all the female roles in one. But there's at least two scenes in this movie with secretaries, and they're all delightful secretaries. But they're lovely. I take back what I, I, in the last episode, I said that no one in this film was good at their job. <laughs> the secretaries are great at their jobs. They're excellent. She's like clear, direct communication, communicates that there may be a slight delay, but not much of one. Yeah. You know, offers him a coffee. Yes. She's 10 out of 10. Um, and you mentioned in the previous minute, I think that in Harry's backstory is he, he has a brief marriage to a secretary for six in months. In the novelization. Now, that makes sense to me because it seems the only conversations he has with females are secretaries. So <laughs> um, maybe that's his only chance to socialise. It strikes me as maybe, I mean, that the... the Office scenes in this film are galling in their, like, I guess how clinical and bland they are. And they're even shot in a very flat 
kind of almost like a theatrical way. Like you almost feel like you're watching yeah. a play. And I wonder if that was, well, it almost certainly was a choice because the, the rest of the film is shot in this quite dynamic way. And, you know, there's some, there's a great beauty in a lot of the shots and this kind of flat um, drab, you know, um, you know, fluorescently lit yeah. kind of pallid way that they do all the office scenes. I wonder if that is, I guess, trying to get across exactly what you were saying before, mm. Trent, about, you know, the infuriating um, indifference of this bureaucracy to the human um, goals that we are all supposed mm. to understand and, and share that Harry has. Yeah, absolutely. Very much that contrast with the office environment to the on-the-field environment. Yeah. Mm. I don't want to go into next-minute territory, but... Do you think it's really urgent the DA needs to scold him, um, Evelyn? Here the secretary says it's urgent. He's asked for you. In reality, would yeah, but does like, the DA, does the public prosecutor actually get to see the police and admonish them? Or I don't know how it works, but like, like if it's urgent, Harry does not look like he's in a rush to get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like he just strolls on in, like, hey, I heard this was urgent. Um, it's, but I didn't there's, rush. There's no, there's no sense of urgency on his part. Yeah, because he's cool and sad. <laughs> cool and sad. I mean, the DA is obviously a high-ranking position and, you know, by all means, he's going to be more than happy to tell someone that they've fucked up and, you know, not to sort of step on his feet kind of thing with what he's doing. So, you know, he's going to give him the proverbial smack on the ass that he thinks he deserves. This is in contrast to when Harry's later, you know, spent a quarter of an hour, hour on his ass waiting for the mayor. Here he gets <laughs> straight in for punishment. <laughs> Look at the colour of those doors. I went into an office recently, like probably that vintage, and they had doors like that. It was beautiful. And I think you hit on the best adjective, pallid. Yeah. yeah. Pallid, yeah. yeah. Everything's just like, I mean, I, it's like I lose my appetite and like any like libido, I'm just kind of like looking at this, like the, the way that this whole scene's constructed and the palette. I'm just like, I just, I, I sort of lose the will to live a little bit. It's, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's just so ugly and just so kind of uninspiring. So Trent, is- sorry to interrupt. I even think these scenes, they may have graded the film down, like compared to earlier when he's with Bressler and the flick. Yeah. Right, even these look quite pallid. Maybe it's deliberate. Yeah, I love that so, as you know, we're now going to have Dirty Harry counselling minute. Um, did you, Ange, early <laughs> on, did you have work experience in an old government office or something like that to give I you PTSD from this? I think, like, a lot of school buildings yeah. were, you know, were kind of around this era. Um, yeah, and, like, just, yeah, shit, shitty offices, I guess, that I've been in. Um, you know, the ABC before, it's various Renaults, mm. uh, and it just kind of reminds me of, yeah, like not f- not fun. Yeah. The opposite of fun. Have you ever been called into an ABC executive and said, you should have got those clearance rights for the audio? <laughs> <laughs> We're so careful. I remember one time we did an episode of um, the podcast about national anthems mm-hmm. and we went to town because we're digital first. We don't get to like any kind of fair use or anything. Like, yeah. mm. we, we don't ever get to use music. And this one time we were allowed to because they're national anthems. So the normal rules don't apply. Yeah. We probably overcooked it, to be honest. Like we use a lot of music because it's this total luxury. Mm. Uh, I can't remember what the question was. Oh, they've ever been yeah, told off. You didn't get oh. those rights. I've, Clearance I've, rights. Haven't been told off so much at the ABC, but I have been told. Maybe this is like flashbacks to school. Maybe it's giving me flashbacks to school to see because I was told off quite a bit at school. 
Um, maybe it just reminds me of being in trouble mm. in, in a teacher's office or in the principal's office. I've got a note here from Tim, Evelyn. And he said he remembers first watching this. Trent, we watched it. You watched this the first of all of us in year 10, right? Well, I watched it in year 10. I was year seven, yeah. Year seven. He remembers thinking, where's the movie going, like, after this? Particularly, it's a long shot of him entering. He really... What would you think is about to happen, Evelyn? Because this is a a weird movie. It's Many movies would end right there with a girl found dead or come up. Yeah, you think that's, like, all right, they've caught the killer, they found the girl, even though they failed, she's dead. And this is that moment where you are not sure what's about to happen. He's going to go through that door and the DA is either going to go, mate, you did such a great job, we got him. Thanks for that. Or he is going to get completely reamed up the ass. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but even if he said, great job, mate, that would be a weird place to end the movie. It would. Yeah. And, you know, we've still got half an hour to go. We've already had three acts, really, like yeah. presentation of the killer, establishment of the character, and then resolution of the immediate what we think is. And now it's, oh, there's another half hour to go. And we've already had, like, the, the chase around the city, yeah. which is your chase scene. So You know what I thought? Like, because a lot of these scenes are, even though they they seem quite, um, they have this perfunctory quality to them, they also have this tension that you never really know. Because I feel like, I don't know if you guys agree, but it, it seemed to me as if music was used quite sparingly. Oh, very much. In this yeah, film. Yeah, and And music is so often, like, a, a really huge clue as to what, you know, what to expect next or what kind of moment this is. And you just don't get those cues in this film. And so it is quite tense to watch in a really exciting way mm. because you, you you don't know. Like, for me, what I was low-key expecting to happen the whole time was that he would be framed as the killer because, I mean, that would have been a fairly, like, obvious Harry. and annoying. Yeah, obvious oh. and annoying thing to do maybe. Didn't even think but, about that. Did you? Yeah, I was kind of like, is he going to – because, you know, they're both – you have that moment on the, on the, on the yeah. pitch where they're like – um, you know, both you see this darkness in him and you never, you don't know much about his history yeah. as well. And he kind of has this, he has this very dark quality to him and they really ramp that up. Um, and he's sort of this revered figure, but, uh, you know, he's anti-authoritarian as well. And you, and you just can see that he would be perfect to, to set up. And I was sort of looking for that in the plot. I was looking for that option in the plot. Um, in the way that they shot it. And moments like this, where he's got, like, on this long walk into the mm. office, you wonder if something like that is about to be sprung on him. Evelyn, I've got a nice quote here. It oh, says, yes. A lot of Dirty Harry feels tacked together. Most of the time, the tacking works. It leads to strange, nice scenes, usually giving Eastwood some depth. It usually gets loud for a moment, then quiets down for a little while. There are some great scenes that manage to leap and bound over thin aspects of the script. Harry's occasional aside makes sure the audience know he's our kind of bastard. Eastwood's super cop is likeable until the third act. Yeah. Do some parts of this film seem just episodic to you? Uh, a little I, bit, I, yeah. I problem, Actually, but... a little mm. bit because mm. I, I think I agree with that. It's like scenes have been stitched together. And I also agree with that, you know, it gets loud and then gets quiet yeah. because there are a lot of moments in this where you're just a bit like, What's going on? For me, the more interesting scenes are, you know, Scorpio on the rooftop and, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff and the, and the scene at the stadium. Um, the rest of it is a bit flat. Mm. Yeah. Is that a ficus, Trent? A what? Is that a ficus, <laughs> the plant in the oh, background? I think it might be. It, well, hang on, what's a ficus? <laughs> Acknowledging something, I don't know what the fuck it is. Kind of plant. It's a really good <laughs> office plant. Imagine if it was some sort of elaborate trap, like some way to find out that you're not the botanist that you've always claimed to be. <laughs> I only know the word ficus because there was that 
Michael Moore TV oh, Nation that episode. Yes. Oh, what the fuck's a ficus? I remember that. I don't know. Like the paintings on my wall are of exotic birds, not plants. There is the ferns there. So the painting to the left is that of the marina where the uh, of the DA. Then the left hand does it look like the marina where the uh, the phone box relay started? Oh, maybe. You would have to pay me so much money to sit in that office every day. <laughs> Just look at the fucking doors. Like, the colour of them is hilarious. Why so does he have two doors? Is one a so private orange. bathroom? Like, he's got two doors there. It's to confuse. It's like a power play for yeah. people that he's, like, brought in that he wants to dress down. So when they're all, like, shaken from being, you know, having strips torn off them and they turn to leave with tears in their eyes that they didn't want to spill out in front of this powerful man, they have this moment of, fuck, which door did I walk in from? Also, he's got a lot of pencils on his desk and a couple of pens. Never got his pen license. Oh, there's some pens in there. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like two pens, but that's a lot of pencils. Maybe he likes to sketch. Um, I, I do find it unusual that the guy sitting down doesn't introduce himself at all. He just yeah. sits there and minds his own business. Yeah, and everyone's and what- real chill about that. Yeah. <laughs> so he walks in and everyone's just ignoring him. <laughs> Which is always this a bad sign. Is your father. <laughs> <laughs> the Constitution. <laughs> your father wants to speak to you, Harry. <laughs> well, I think it's unavoidable. Uh, it's time for our next instalment of Miranda Rights Minute, guys. <laughs> We've spoken generally about the Escobedo and Miranda case before, Trent, about the right to, to attorney, the right to silence that were a big part of the Supreme Court's push in the 60s under uh, Justice Warren. Um, which got a lot of criticism from the right of, you know, deny police the ability to get confessions, um, which was a big part of prosecution back those days before ballistics had improved and before DNA was reliable or was even known. Um, It was attacked on the right, again, for saying it's unrealistic that you can just get voluntary statements completely from people. Um, And there was a, you know, a conscious move that even the word interrogation was dirty, you should afford a criminal, a suspect, um, all these rights of silence and um, uh, presumptions. Yes, Ange. Oh, just, I oh, know when you said that, like, I just, I just had this flashback to the moment in this next minute yeah. <laughs> where he's like, oh, I'm real broken up oh. about this guy's rights. <laughs> and it's like, he's like a schoolboy. He's like, his sarcasm is out of control. And with this, like, father, like, this judgy father figure in the corner and, like, you know, the kind of the stern DA dressing him down, he's like, ugh. I just feel like he's this far from calling them both squares. (laughs) So, yes, Miranda was in full force at this time. And um, Richard Nixon, of course, was voted in 1969. Is that right? And he promised, well, the rhetoric was that he'd appoint justices um, that were more conservative and might undermine some of these rights. Yeah. I feel like that's quite, it's quite like inside baseball for what was essentially a popular film. I feel like if you had like, a, a big blockbuster made today, it wouldn't be referencing like legal precedents that had yeah. been established in the last two years. Certainly not referencing them casually. Like there would yeah. be a lot of exposition to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't just be like Miranda Escobedo. Like, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I had to look that up out of context. I'm familiar with those legal concepts, but yeah. you know, they were just not dropped. And I wonder, I really wonder how, uh, what the sort of general knowledge of the audience would have been like on those topics, whether that would have gone over the heads of a lot of people who would have been likely to see this film at the time it was released. Or if everyone was sitting there nodding going, yeah, man, like why haven't you heard of these legal precedents? You don't know what Miranda rights are. My God, man, where you been? Because when you do look at his face in the scene, he doesn't, 
it really doesn't look like he knows. He kind of, but that yeah. could just be like classic blank Clint face. Well, apparently it entered pop culture quite fast. Um, within like a year or two in the decision, the 64, it's not 66 that they'd already, most cops were pre-issuing those Miranda right waivers that they waived under the suspect's rights to sign. Apparently in that show Dragnet Trent, that yeah. was it was constantly you have the right to remain silent. Uh, it was in that episode of Kojak I've seen, the first pilot of Telly Savellas, where the the African American kid is um, detained and not given his rights. So it entered pop culture quite quickly. But the fact you're right, Ange, the fact that they mentioned haven't you heard of Miranda Escobita, you know, dropping those names, it's a bit in, disingenuous for them to say, oh, it's not political. There's no political subtext to this. It's like, well, you've deliberately implicated this this narrative in real life. Mm references yeah so is that something that that they said that filmmakers said that it was like oh where it's not political it's not a political film yeah right siegel's just the director's distanced himself i was just telling a good narrative story and then clint has actuated between saying it wasn't political it's just a a what if situation you know but yeah there's a political subtext to this movie that even i can't deny trent i'm (laughs) I'm left of center but it's it's i enjoy it you enjoy it too evelyn don't you yeah, I like this movie. But you also like rights. I do like rights. Human rights. Sorry. Um, yes, human rights are important. Are they? Are they really? Well, actually, they Scorpio's are. rights aren't. I actually agree with Daddy Harry when he says but then what about the Dickens girls? rights. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm with him on that. And also, um, Scorpio assaulted uh, Harry earlier. Like, yeah. so don't they have that charge? Like, they yeah, just like so. he's still got. He's still. He's still fucking marked on his face. Like, he's still injured from that. Like, he got really badly injured. Like We've talked about the the, uh, the fruit of the poisonous tree rule, right? Like, it wasn't <coughs> – it was pretty much an illegal search of the stadium. Yes, that was definitely – You illegal. could tenuously say he was in hot pursuit of a criminal. Like, once Scorpio tried to run away, that attenuated the fact that it was um, that it was an illegal search and he was in hot pursuit of a, a subject. The body would be admissible. There'd be other evidence you could string up with. Like, for instance, if you found the pliers that took out her teeth in that hole, if they had his fingerprints on, they're admissible. They could probably compel Scorpio to do a handwriting test to see if it matches. There's a lot of probative evidence. You don't really need necessarily his confession. But I think they think the best thing to tie him to is the rooftop shooting, the rifle. They think that's the best way of getting it. They're also real casual about the gun in this scene. I don't know if you noticed, but it's just like plonked yeah. on a bookcase. <laughs> <laughs> It would not be in there. It would be safe in a cabinet somewhere. Giant Ziploc bag, the world's biggest. Well, I think we might end this podcast just with a quick discussion, Trent. We've basically outlined in previous episodes the Miranda rights. Like Scorpio's confession or admission that the body is here in Golden Gate Park would be struck out. It would be, you know, even if it wasn't torture, it was compelled, that would be, that would be not denied. But there are some exceptions in the 70s um, to canvas these type situations um in harris versus new york 1971 it was held that confessions obtained in violation of miranda rights may be used if um the defendant takes the stage in trial like takes the stage and you can introduce those statements that have were forcibly obtained in- illegally to to counter his testimony about himself saying he's a prior you're saying this, but here's another time where you said something different. You can introduce those unmirandized rights then. In Rhode Island versus Innes of 1980, um, it was ruled that a spontaneous remark made voluntarily could be admissible um, as long as it's not in a result of direct 
police questioning. The facts were these. The suspect was arrested in connection with robbery of a cab driver with a sawn-off shotgun. Uh, upon arrest, the suspect received his Miranda rights, his warnings, and responded that he wanted to speak to an attorney. He was placed in a police car to take to the station. The officers in the front began a discussion showing concern about the missing shotgun, saying casually, Jeez, there's a lot of handicapped children running around this area. God forbid one of them find a weapon with shells and they might hurt themselves. The suspect interrupted them, asked the officers to turn back so he could show them where the weapon was. At trial, the suspect moved to suppress these statements. However, it was held that the conversation between the two officers was nothing more than a dialogue between them, to which no response from the respondent was invited. And um, their casual conversation uh, wasn't reasonably likely to elicit an incriminating response. So these decisions have somewhat given a lot of caveats, exceptions to the Miranda rights. Um, the most famous, which is called the Rescue Doctrine, um, where it was held in People versus Dean, 1974. While life hangs in the balance, there is no room to require admonitions concerning the right to counsel and to remain silent. There was a three-part test. One, there needed to be an urgent need of information in which no other course of action promised relief. B, the possibility of rescuing a person whose life was in danger. And three, the rescue had to be the primary purpose and motive of the interrogators, which I think sums up these situations well. He needs the information urgently. Yeah, girl's life is at stake. Mm -hmm. There's a possibility, not just a probability, that a person whose life is in danger and that the obtaining that information can provide a rescue. Yeah. Mm. They, I guess Harry thought that if they didn't get Scorpio in time, or, or they needed Scorpio to, to find out where she was because they wouldn't have found her without him. So mm. even though we don't see Scorpio confess to where she is. Yeah. The irony of the law is you can admit the body, mm. but you can't say how you came to know the body. Mm. But that very fact that you've... Told them where it is. You've told them where it is has led you, but you can't get Harry on the stand saying, and then Scorpio told me. Yeah. Told me that the body was here. So in some ways they they were kind of off the mark in saying that all of this is inadmissible, right? So I This rescue doctrine didn't come around to the late 70s. Oh, so okay. Gradual witting, uh, exceptions and caveats so to So now the, we're just not we're not talking about the film anymore. We're talking about Miranda in general. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Next week, we'll talk about the public safety exception, which has even made that rescue doctrine more generous, Trent. Is, this a, is this a legal podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I feel duty-bound to explain this. Because a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the um, IMDb comments are like, this is absurd, this wouldn't happen. This is, you know, Harry would, you'd be able to, Harry would get beyond this. I can't wait till we do Police Academy Minute and you go through all the legalities of the <laughs> shit like Hightower tipping over cars and stuff like uh, that. That's what I'm hanging out for. <laughs> well, um, that's pretty much all I've got for this this minute, this ficus-laden minute. Evelyn, have you got any last last comments? I'm not sure if it is a ficus, but that's, that's fine. You no, ever I- owned that many pens? You ever had that many pens close to you? I actually have a lot of stationery at work. I'm a bit of a stationery horde. Look how sharp those pencils look, even from yeah. that distance. Yeah, they, they, they look ready. Yeah. There's only the one pen that I'll use. It's this pen. I don't want to say the brand name because they, they're, oh. not, they're not paying me, but it is like, it's just a really, really nice. I used to have a box of those. Yeah, yeah they're I good. Bu- I've found a place, whenever I find somewhere that sells them, I buy like 
20. Mm. And then yeah. I found out the hard way, though. They don't fly. They no. bust if you take them on the plane. Really? Oh. So you got to buy new ones in every city. Oh. It's, it's like a fountain pen kind of inky. It's, it's, it's like a lot more inky, like right? It's a real fancy ballpoint. Yeah. Just, and yeah, the, yeah, the, the, ink, the ink flows freely. And look, it beats the shit out of pencils. Um, so... Yeah. Pencils, pencils are hard in this day and age because I find like you're always like, where's the eraser? Like, yeah. if you don't have one, you're like, why the fuck am I using a pencil? <laughs> and and I don't know, my office situation at work, the reason why I hoard stationery is because you can never find stationery mm-hmm. when you need it. What does your desk look like? Oh, it's a lot of pink <laughs> post-it notes. A lot of pink post-it notes. A lot of bit of stationery. It's actually a big fucking mess at the moment. <laughs> People actually come over and they're like, oh, you got enough post-it notes there? And I'm like, no, I could always have more. But um, I'm a hoarder for, for stuff. As our previous guest, Tim, related, how much space we had back pre-computers on your desk to put things out? Yeah. Oh, yeah, mate. Well, people would have to get creative. You just have to find ways to decorate your com- <laughs> like to, to fill the desk, you know, because you, there is no computer, yeah. so people have got, like, photos and shit. Yeah. And no, this guy makes his secretary do all the typing. They've got the typewriters yeah, right. out there. He's Fair not touching that. that. Yeah, that's right. We don't get to see Harry's desk, do we, Trent? I don't think we, we do. We don't see his home. We don't see where he puts his... doesn't have a desk. His no. desk is, is the streets. Market. His desk is the streets. That's his right. office is the streets. <laughs> oh, something that I wanted to talk about that I actually have totally forgotten to mention until now is that this whole film is very complicated for me to watch because Clint Eastwood looks quite a bit like my father. Really? Yeah. Like, like, like Clint Eastwood is more handsome than my father, but no, no, no. I mean, it would just be, it would be weird if he wasn't because otherwise my dad would be a movie star. Right. But, um, but in so many ways, like, and, and even like the sternness and the kind of like, uh, you know, weird weirdo law and order like you know there's a there's a real parallel between this character clear my dad's not like a gunslinging you know but just to look at and the way that he speaks and the lack of emotion that passes across his face (laughs) is so my father that i was quite distracted all the way through the film that's my that's my final look yeah Many thanks for joining us, Ange. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I know you famously from The Signal. Yes. The Signal on iTunes and every other. All the other platforms, although not all of them. And we sometimes get angry emails back because we'll say like, and wherever you get your podcasts at the end of the episode, and we'll get people writing back as people want to do. Um, particularly podcasters, I find, you know, they can often be, um, you know, they're very, they can be very particular. And so they write by saying, well, you're not on this one and you're not on this yeah. one. So technically you weren't actually going, sorry, sorry, sorry. Anyway, we're on a, we're a lot of places um so yeah the signal and the vitals on instagram uh, twitter anything on instagram on twitter i get like these og handles because um i have a weird and pretentious surname <laughs> um also on facebook obviously and otherwise yeah you can and the web series that i do with jane what as well is called imposters whatever that's like five things i've plugged now i should stop <laughs> And Evelyn, do you like to be found anyway? Um, I do have an Instagram, but it's mostly food pictures. But on the stories, I do sometimes post about other things. Would you divulge that or is that private? No, it's not private. It's um, Evzygal, so E-V-E-S-Y-G-A-L. Evzygal. And that's basically my handle everywhere, so on Twitter as well and anything And your mum? Evzygal, dinner's ready. We'll catch you next time on (laughs) Dirty Harry Harry Minute. Minute.